Welcome to Asking for a Friend with me, your host, Katrina Buffard. I'm a clinical sexologist, psychotherapist, and sexuality researcher. And this podcast covers any and every topic relating to sex, intimacy, or relationships that you might feel a little too embarrassed to ask about. This season of Asking for a Friend is sponsored by Desire, South Africa's leading sexual health and wellness store. For a lovely little discount, stay tuned until the end of this episode. We all use the term addiction a little bit too freely. We say that we are addicted to chocolate or addicted to Netflix. And we often use the term addiction in relation to sex, but we aren't addicted to sex. Rather, we compulsively need to engage in sexual behavior in order to soothe or decrease distressing emotions, or perhaps to feel something at all. In this episode, I'm chatting to the wonderful Sylvan Neves, who's a brilliant psychosexual therapist and author of the recent textbook, Compulsive Sexual Behaviors. Whether you are someone who has experienced this, knows somebody who struggles with sexual compulsivity, or you're a clinician who wants to work with these concerns, we can all learn from Sylvan's no-nonsense and empathic approach to treating sexual compulsivity. This is a conversation I've been looking forward to having because We've been Instagram friends for a very, very long time. We've, we've thanks pandemic, but we haven't gotten to meet in person. And I've, I've really started to recognize how unbelievably knowledgeable and experienced you are when it comes to treating um, sexual compulsivity. Uh, thank you. I kind of had to learn uh, my way through it because there's so much misunderstanding about sexual compulsivity um, and very few literature really about sexual compulsivity that is uh, sex positive and evidence-based even that uh, it was a it was a long journey actually to get to to where I am today from the you know learning the traditional sex addiction way of conceptualizing the problem that people bring to the consulting room and all the way to now the way that I work with sexual compulsivity it's almost there at night but the process of it was to kind of I had to really you know find different voices read different books books that uh, and voices that really would uh, disagree with each other and with all of that making some sense of it for myself because of course we know as therapists that we can only work with things that make sense to us we can only offer a treatment that makes sense to us and so um you know with being helped with a lot of my colleagues um and then over time i just you know uh, made a conceptualization that worked for me but for me it was very much one that's based in the science of sexology because you just really need to be more evidence-based in this uh, in this area I absolutely agree with you, and I love I love the way you 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 framed that about working working in specific areas or with specific presentations. Because, as I said to you just before we 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 started, I I don't treat sexual compulsivity. It's something that I've actually chosen not to treat, and that was because uh, Dr. Ruth Westheimer. You know that name, right? If, if yes, I Dr. Ruth, you'll know that name. I'm not sure a lot of people know that name, but. I was very fortunate to spend some time with her and get to know her um, one-on-one many years ago. And she gave me some fantastic advice from her career. And she said to me, if you, if you don't agree with it, 
don't work with it. So, and I, I don't mean sexual compulsivity, but I'll, I'll explain what I mean. For her, she really struggled with anything relating to BDSM. She said that that really kind of challenged her personally as well as professionally. And so she decided that was a presentation or a, a group or a concern, whatever it was relating to that sort of sexual experience that she didn't want to work with. And I decided very early on that kind of um, sexual deviance, pedophilia, sexual offenders, that was an area I wasn't going to work with. And I think that almost naturally sexual compulsivity slid very, very silently into that, into that group for me, which I wasn't intending for it to do. But it's just so happened that I've spent my career focusing on um, more difficulties with the sexual response, you know, arousal, desire, orgasms, pain, and not necessarily sexual, sexually compulsive behavior. So I'm, I'm going to learn so much from you today in our conversation. And I, I hope that it's something that I can expand my knowledge on and so that I can actually start working a lot more um, with clients who, who've got these concerns. But the very first question, a lot of people are, I'm sure, going to be seeing the title of this podcast or hearing us talk about sexual compulsivity, and they're not going to know what that is because you and I understand it as that. So what was it formerly known as? Why do we need to move away from that? Yes, uh, well, sexual compulsivity, uh, the most famous name for it at the moment is sex addiction. And that is a name that's been around for well, since the 80s, mostly since the 80s, when Dr. Kahn's uh, made it very popular as part of clinical discourse. And of course, since then, uh, it's gone seeped into the media and into our popular language. So now it's not just only a clinical word, it's also a popular word. You know, I'm a sex addict, actually addict in general is a popular word you know i'm a chocolate addict i'm a shop addict i'm a netflix addict you know people say that every day as their normal language um but um but before that actually before the 80s um clinicians especially psychoanalysts were observing sexual compulsivity and they had different words for it back then they were more concerned about female sexuality because you know misogyny and uh, they were um, you know the word was nymphomania and there was quite a lot they tried to find their way through a treatment for it most of it's quite uh, bad but it was still kind of something observed not um uh, not perceived as an addiction at the time then the 80s came and um and with that came the uh, epidemic of uh, aids ed epidemic and so people became very very afraid of sex and at the time dr Kant came on the scene and he observed people's um having uh, unwanted sex repetitive unwanted sex even when it was um, uh, producing some negative consequences. Back in the 80s, of course, the one of the major consequences was death because of, the, because of HIV and the AIDS-related um, uh, illnesses. So when, and also at the time in the 80s, there wasn't any other formulation available. The science of sexology was uh, in its infancy and there was hardly any research anywhere, really. So, of course, you know, when you see on the surface a behavior that's a repetitive behavior, an unwanted one that can create some, you know, that can cause a lot of damage, you would equate it to something to the closest that it's known. And that would be other addictions like other known addictions like alcohol and drugs. So in some ways, I really understand why the label sex addiction came to be because, you know, it looks like it actually. And for many people that have this problem, it feels like it. 
But since now we're in 2021, and since then, there's been a lot of research on sex addiction. There's been a lot of research. Uh, the, the field of sexology exploded and flourished. And now we have so much more information about human sexuality. And, and what we have seen is that actually through so much research, there isn't an addiction component to sexual behaviors. So then we had to find another way. And for many, many years, there was never, sex addiction was always anecdotal. Uh, it was definitely some, a lot of things that you know, therapists were talking about, books were written about it, but it was all stories and there was no science behind it. Um, and, and, and the science, as I said, you know, just kept coming up with, well, wh where is it? We don't see it, right? Um, so, and it's only in 20, 18 that the ICD-11 decided to agree on a diagnostic uh, framework which they called compulsive sexual behavior disorder and they clearly say that it is under impulse, impulse control rather than addiction and the reason for that is because the components of addiction that we define clinically as an addiction have never been observed in all the research. And the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, also says we don't endorse sex addiction because there's not uh, enough evidence for it. So scientifically, sex addiction is uh, not endorsed. Um, and it's only just the last few years, since 2018, that we have a guide to actually conceptualize what it is. Before that, it was up to anybody's opinion. And what the ICD-11 did um, was that the, the criteria to actually meet the disorder element are really, really tight. So tight, in fact, that most people can't meet it. So in some ways, that's pretty good because it means that now we have a guide to undiagnose people who self-diagnose with sex addiction because that's so easy. You know, people will, for example, they will uh, cheat on their partners multiple times the first thing they will think is, I'm a sex addict. They go online, they Google it. That will confirm that they're a sex addict. And then they turn up to a clinic self, already with a self-diagnosis. So now we can say, well, actually, maybe you have a sexual compulsivity problem. Maybe you have traits of sexual compulsivity. Let's look into that, but probably not meeting the disorder. So it depathologizes. Um, a lot of people that feel they have an illness or a disease because, you know, addiction really is loaded word. It's a, it's a disease word. So it really helps to depathologize people and to, and for people to be a bit more curious about what's going on for them, really. You know, what's the, what is underneath the symptom of the sexual compulsivity? Do you think it's almost been easy to use that? I mean, you, you spoke about like, I'm addicted to chocolate, you know, it's, it's such an easy term to use. And do you think the term sex addiction has almost been easy to use for, I, I, you know, the classic one is Tiger Woods, right? Um, mm -hmm. It's been easy for people to use. I don't know. Do you think that people have almost latched onto this term because sexual compulsivity, it, it holds it in, in my mind, it's kind of holding a different meaning. The, mm -hmm. Sex addiction and sexual compulsivity, they actually feel different as yeah. experiences that you might have compulsivity makes me think that it's, it's almost unwanted. I'm, I'm, I, I'm doing it and I'm distressed by it, but addiction, while we know if you're talking about a drug addiction and alcohol addiction, you can say I've got a chocolate addiction and I love, love, love chocolate. It's great. And I just wonder what your thoughts are on that. Yes. I think the term sex addiction is definitely 
has been used as a way out of um, not facing the more uncomfortable stories about people's lives. So, uh, like you say, celebrities, for example. Uh, but earlier you mentioned um, uh, sexual offending, and actually this is part of the sex addiction narrative, and that's what, what one of the things that from the sex addiction narrative that makes people very afraid of it is because uh, people think that sex addiction has some kind of like dark thing uh, underneath it. And it leads, you know, if you're a sex addict, you can become a sexual offender. It can lead to sexual offending. And all of that stuff is really, really quite, uh, well, first of all, completely incorrect, but, yeah. but damaging and, and, and putting a lot of fear on people's normative sexual behaviors. And, um, um, and so a lot of people, a lot of clinicians will not want to work with it because they are afraid of it because they think, oh, it's on the same level of sexual offending. Mm. But, because, but within that, you know, going back to your question, a lot of people who are actually sex offenders, rich, powerful people will decide to go to a sex addiction clinic. And of course, one of the most famous examples is uh, Harvey Weinstein who um, went to a sex addiction clinic for a week or so, I don't know how long really, but you know, those uh, luxury ones, um, because it's actually a lot less uncomfortable. The label of sex addict is a lot less uncomfortable than the, sex, than, than the label of sex offender. And also it has a bit of a, I wouldn't say something sexy about sex addiction, but it, it's almost like thinking, it's not me. It's not me. I'm not doing this. It's my sex addiction. My sex addiction did it. So it just takes away the, the responsibility and the accountability, actually. And, um, and even in popular kind of like 12-step programs or the addiction thinking, people are, are encouraged to think of, of a higher power and to think of, you know, I've got to surrender to my addiction and I've got to listen to my higher power or some kind. And again, that's just really taking the internal locus of control about it to actually, because actually the, the most uh, uncomfortable story is that most people are not out of control. They are making decisions, they are choosing. And people who are sex offenders, they're choosing to offend because of, uh, a very big issue that is definitely not an addiction. It's something else. And they have to, they have to look at that. And, and going to a sex addiction clinic is not going to be the right treatment for them. But people like you say, like Tiger Wood or, you know, celebrities who are not sex offenders, but people who cheat on a multiple uh, uh, times, but not just that, actually, that's not the issue. The issue is getting caught. Yeah. Then, then they go, they go to places like this, and this is, they say the same thing. I've got to, it is because I've got an illness, and it's because of my addiction, and I'm gonna go to the higher power, and things will be okay. It's actually uh, taking away, facing actually, I did choose this. I made some decisions, and why do we know? Is because, and that's one of the reasons why it's not an addiction, sexual compulsivity, is because actually, people that can uh, cheat on their partner multiple times for a period of over six months are pretty good at their diary management and they're pretty good at living a double life and they're pretty good at organizations and that means they are have a really focused mind mm -hmm. on 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 choosing when to do the sexual behaviors and it doesn't sound like impaired an impaired brain mm -mm. at all mm -mm. it doesn't sound like those activities are getting in the way of you actually functioning and living life day to day. Whereas exactly. the distress I imagine that one would experience 
when struggling with sexual compulsivity, it becomes all-encompassing. It becomes something you 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 feel like you can't escape from. It, it's something that you, you are constantly aware of in your life. So, you know, if we're moving away from the Tiger Woods and the Harvey Weinstein's of the world, and I'm so glad I'm so glad you brought up Harvey Weinstein because I think that that, that was such a valuable point that you made. If we're moving away from that now to say, okay, on that side of the spectrum are those that would perhaps use, have used the term sex addict to justify, you know, their behavior. If we swing to the other side where it's those who are really struggling and are really distressed, what, what does that look like? So what does sexual compulsivity look like for, for somebody who's struggling from it? And is it just men as the narrative often speaks to, or is it, is it any person can struggle? Hmm from sexual compulsivity? Any person can struggle, men, women too. And that, that's another you know, uncomfortable narrative that actually there are women with a very big, have very high sex drive with a very vibrant sexuality. And a lot of them will be put a label of sex addicts when actually they just uh, have a, a, a very big sex life. And, and that's, a, you know, that's also part of misogyny. Um, but also, of course, women can, can struggle with genuine sexual compulsivity, just like men and, and any, other, any other people. So sexual compulsivity, really, as you say, it's got to be um, a distress that comes from within. So not a distress of saying, oh, um, I've got a problem because my partner doesn't agree with my turn on. Okay, that would not be classified as a, a, as a distress from within. The distress from within is people saying, I'm doing something that I, I'm really not liking and it disturbs me for me. So it's very hard for people to get their head around it. But sometimes so what I do often is, is um, use the analogy of food and hunger because our sexual hunger and urges are a lot closer as a system to the hunger for food and desire because we know that we eat you know and all of us have had this experience of eating for many many different reasons for physiological reasons but also for many emotional reasons and some people that have um, that struggle with binge eating for example they will say, you know, I know that when I eat the whole packet of biscuit, I do harm to myself. And it's not because my partner doesn't agree. It's, it's me. I do that to myself. And sometimes I can feel sick, but I cannot stop myself. Okay. And that is um, the same with sexual compulsivity. The, the genuine sexual compulsivity is people that do behavior and they think this is, I just did not enjoy any of that. And it just feels so wrong for me. It's against my values. It's against even the way that I like to be touched on my body. It's against my primary turn-ons. And, and I don't know why I'm doing this. That's an, an important um, component is the lack of awareness of why they're doing what they're doing. So with people binge eating, for example, they know that eating the whole packet of biscuit is not going to um, resolve the issues, right? They know that consciously, right? But they do it anyway because they just don't know what else to do. They are unaware of what is going on for them. And so that will be the same with sexual compulsivity. And, and, um, and often with binge eating and also with sexual compulsivity, if we look at just the behavior, it will be very hard to actually treat that person very well. You have to look at what's underneath because the compulsivity serves the purpose to soothe a chronic stress. So um, people I, have... I'm sorry, I have to interrupt you. I was going to ask about that because binge eating is often a soothing action. 
while yeah. consciously intellectually someone can say this is not good for me this this i'm gonna i know i'm gonna beat myself up afterwards but it stops me feeling what i'm feeling right now and i'm assuming that's the distress that we've been talking about exactly yes that's right got it okay. and and the re and the difference between people saying people for example cheating multiple times or doing something that is outside of their values multiple times but but not having so you know th those people you can say they have a you know a sexual behavior problem sure sure certainly but may not be compulsivity because it could be different things that drives them it could be for example an erotic conflict between saying well actually I have I have a I have a, a very big kink that's very important for me but uh, my partner doesn't have that kink so they will go somewhere else for the kink and it's is that is that very big erotic pool um that uh, will get them to you know maybe go outside of their primary relationship and again that is usually not very misunderstood that's not very understood because people have a lot of shame about it so all they meet is the shame and they don't meet the actual underlying erotic need right um and often the, the issues there is you know well their relationship setup is not quite uh fitting with the erotic mind so that's one one a big group of people coming to therapy thinking they have a, a sex addiction. But the other group, the, the, the genuine compulsivity, is because there is an underlying issue that is constant, a chronic one, not just occasional disturbance. And that's the difference. And that's really why the distress, people feel a lot of distress because they just have to keep doing it and they don't know why, because the underlying disturbance, often they don't know why what it is. Um, but also the other important element, that's when it gets to you know, more and more complex because it's so many different elements, just like binge eating people, the binge eating people, they will binge eat on the food they like. They're not going to binge on the carrots or on the spinach. You know, they binge on the chocolate and the biscuits on the things that are comforting, the things that they really like and the things that are naughty and uh, noting, you know, air quote. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like the same um, with sexual compulsivity. People will do sexual compulsivity, but they will do behaviors they actually enjoy as well, they, they, that produces pleasure that they like. And sometimes the, the real element of making it so potent erotically is because, air quote, it's naughty or it's, you know, against the rules. So, uh, so all of that is, needs to be taken into consideration to really help people really properly understand what is going on for them. But then the, usually when you go deeper, the chronic disturbance, um, well, it can be different things for different people. For many, it's um, trying to resolve some kind of past trauma. And they, they have symptoms of past trauma. They don't sometimes even realize that uh, that is going on for them because some people say, and I'm sure you've had it in your consulting room many times, people start therapy thinking, yes, my childhood was great, not realizing that actually sometimes um, uh, people don't uh, have a memory of a, a specific big trauma, like a big event. But the, just the fact that uh, a father can be absent, you know, present, but emotionally absent, that is uh, really significant for people and they will not consider it as a trauma. Um, but that can be that that can really have an impact on people, and they can and that can be one of the uh, ill at ease feeling that people have then in adult life that that, that chronic stress. For the people, it is full blown trauma because of very big trauma traumatic things that happened in the past. For other people, it can be um, less um, deep, but still really 
um, distressing. For example, many people uh, feel they're trapped in the rat race. And that can be enough for a chronic stress to, to occur that would need soothing. A lot of people say, you know, I've got all these things. I've got a partner and I've got children and I've got a big house and I hate my job, but I've got to keep going. I can't find any way out because otherwise I'm going to feel like I'm a bad person or people think, you know, in order to feel like a man or feel like a good spouse, I have to keep providing all the time, all the time, all the time. And that can create a major deficit um, in, in people's lives. And this, this constant, this constant, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, I've got to be better, I've got to be better. That can be the chronic stress that sexual compulsivity can soothe. Uh, you, you used the word as I was about to tap into it, that idea of soothing. So much of what you've said is around soothing, is around yeah. seeking out the the, the decreasing of the distressing, upsetting, uncomfortable feeling and the increasing of a, uh, the pleasurable feeling and thus the soothing. And at the very start of our conversation, you spoke about, you know, chocolate addictions and so on. And, and I, I, I kind of made this mental note like, oh, you know, pleasure. Pleasure is this big part of it. And I think that it, you have made a really, really great point because you said, you know, people who are experiencing this they are distressed by it they are wanting to change it for themselves and maybe also for their partners or for their relationships but that doesn't mean that when they engage in it they're completely distressed they're actually enjoying it as you said somebody will go and they're not going to go and you know chomp on and binge on kale they're going to go and find that chocolate that biscuit that you know packet of crisps whatever it's a specific act that actually is enjoyable, that brings pleasure, that's enticing and exciting. And I suppose the dopamine kick, our pleasure, our pleasure um, experience in the brain, is driving the enjoyment that you have from a particular stimulus or action. So whether that's just masturbation without pornography or it's watching a specific type of pornography while you masturbate and that's happening compulsively because of the distress you're feeling there's still pleasure there but mm. i would imagine there's an immense amount of shame associated is that right absolutely and and the shame is mostly because of the the, the soothing mechanism has to do with something to do with sex and if we think about it a lot of us do soothe uh, some stress you know if you uh, constantly i'm sure you have heard people saying oh yes i've had a very very busy week so i spend my weekend on netflix okay so you spend you spend the whole entire weekend on netflix it doesn't it's not shameful you can talk about it you can put it on facebook you can talk about it with your friends and nobody thinks anything of it but if you said i had a really stressful week and i spent my entire weekend watching porn suddenly people would have very strong opinions. There was a lot of shame, a lot of judgment, and people definitely will not say that to, to anybody. They will keep it secret because of the shame. So a lot of the distress that people feel sometimes is actually about the shame, about what they think about it afterwards in that time. And, you know, if you speak to a, a lot of those people that will, uh, you know, when you think of what do you get from this behavior? What is it that, that you get? It's a very important question, right? Because, because there are some gains. And often people say, so for example, somebody who would uh, see sex workers on a very regular basis, often they'll say, this is my only space where it's quiet. And often people don't even say it's about the orgasm. It's not about the sex and the orgasm. People say it's about the connection. It's somebody who can listen to me 
for all hour of undivided time because it's my time. And I can, take, I can tell that person anything. So many people go into sex workers for talking and for a connection. Um, and if you think about it, then they look at the rest of their lives and they think, yes, you know, of course, I love my wife. I connect with my wife, but my wife never gives me a whole hour so that I can just talk because, you know, busy with this and that and, and life and so on. And sometimes I can't say things to my wife because I'm, I will be afraid that she might not like what I have to say. So I just keep it to myself and I avoid conflicts. So, uh, so that's really an, a really important element as well. The connection piece is, is really important. The pleasure piece, the connection piece, all of that are things of real big human nature that uh, are not diseased, you know, they're the human nature, but um, it's really about for people to really understand, you know, if they don't understand what they get from it, they won't be able to integrate it in, in a functioning part of their lives. So, um, so I, I really love those conversations because that's when you can go really deep. And in fact, a lot of the time, our therapy is the same thing. It's that undivided attention for a whole 15 minutes that we have with our clients. And just that in itself can bring so much uh, healing and, 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 and talking and unpacking people's erotic mind without any judgment. In your consulting room, maybe the only place that they have where they can actually do that. And that is really great, uh, a great way to reduce their shame. I, I was actually thinking that as you were saying it, um, you know, spending an hour with a sex worker, spending an hour with a therapist, I was talking about it in a supervision group the other evening, how uh, we were talking about it, how the therapist is actually one of the therapeutic approaches that we might use. They are a therapeutic approach. They are a tool. Um, and I was also thinking about how if you or I said that we watched porn all weekend, nobody would judge us because of what we do for a living. So <laughs> context, context is very, very important. Here. Yes, that's right. It's really <laughs> crucial. But it, 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 I love that you use that Netflix example because there is no shame and judgment. I mean, I was thinking to myself, yeah, I celebrate my friends when they said they did nothing. So I'm like, good for you for just doing what you wanted to do. Look, if my friends said to me, because again, of who I am and what I do, they said, yeah, I stayed in this weekend, masturbated a bit. I'd be like, fabulous. That's great. I'm so glad you did that. But, you know, no one's actually saying that to me um, <laughs> because there's shame associated to it. And, and so I can't even begin to imagine we hold shame to, to you know, day-to-day -day sexual acts, let alone sexual acts that we are engaging with to decrease the distress that we're feeling that we feel that we have to do and I love that question like what do you get what what, what do you get out of this it it it's a really thought-provoking question actually because if you're thinking about somebody who binge eats or you're thinking about somebody who who engages with sex compulsively I imagine that you're you're going to as a therapist anyway you're going to hear some some really emotive answers, some answers. It's not just because I felt like it. You don't, I imagine you don't get that. You get things like, you know, goodness knows, because I was trying, I was trying to not feel what I'm feeling. I was trying to, to just cope with the day ahead. I was trying to just get through the next hour. I imagine it, it they're really, they're, the, the narratives of, of that, that come out of that question, what do you get, are, are really emotive, difficult narratives. 
Yes, that's right. And and as you say, for some, it's you know I'm, I'm trying not to feel something uncomfortable that I'm feeling. For other people, it's the opposite. It's like I really don't feel anything all day long, and I'm was trying to feel something. So it, it really goes both ways. But as you say, whatever ways it goes, it's it's always quite a profound emotive response uh, answer. And 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 often when they uh, when clients answer this question or those types of questions, because there's many questions that can follow from that, our question our answers that even clients sometimes are surprised themselves. Think, I just did not have any idea that this was was going going for me. And but you know, what, all that was needed was somebody curious, like a therapist like us, to actually ask a question. Mm, and ask it in a non-judgmental, non-shaming, open, mm. curious way. Curious way, yes, that's right. You know, you know with with with, uh, with sexual behaviors, a lot of the time people are so desperate to see therapists to for them to, to to be helped to stop the behavior. That's all they want to start with. And if therapists have that goal um, with the client to stop the behaviors, they're not going to be curious about it. And, you know, I just always say to my clients, uh, this is not going to be our primary goal. Our primary goal is to really actually understand it, because if you don't understand it, there, there is no way that you can really make some changes. And, and we have plenty of research backing this up. You know, we know that if we have a, a mindset of scarcity, we're more likely to want to binge. If we have a sense that um, you know, something that is pleasurable and, and actually you get something out of it, uh, is going to be taken away, you're going to want it more. You know, we know that. And also what we know is that if we are, if we're setting up this um, this relationship with a client that we know better or that we are some kind of like parental role that's going to um, assess whether they've had good behaviors or not that week, it's already, the therapy is already on the wrong footing because that's what they get with their partner anyway. And that's what they get with, the rest of the world out there and um and that's often some some of the things that therapists are not always aware of when they when they do the the, the typical sex addiction method compared to sexual compulsivity when you're going to be more curious and it's um, it's quite important because it's actually very easy to do you know very easy i get you know one of the most common things that clients tell me when they come to see me is i lie to my sponsor because i'm afraid of their judgment Wow. Or or I or I lied to my previous therapist because I knew they wouldn't approve with my behaviors. So you know this is this is so sad that people seek help and as they seek help they still have to edit themselves because they know that there's going to be disapproval coming from somebody who's supposed to help them. Look, it's it's not related to this at all. It's 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 about my doctoral research on sexual pain. But one of the motivating factors for me to do that research, and this is just sexual pain, and now we're talking about sexual compulsivity as well, and we could talk about all things sexual. One of the motivations was that I've lost count of how many clients I've seen who've said to me, I've come to see you because I couldn't talk to my own therapist about this. Or I felt that if I spoke to them about this, they'd get uncomfortable, or I spoke to them about it and they shamed me or shut me down or ignored it and moved on. So I'm I'm this motivating fact, one of the motivating factors for me to do my research there in sexual pain and sexual compulsivity. I mean, I can only just imagine, you know, it, there, there are so many similarities just between those two and how people must think they're going to be treated, or unfortunately they are treated. And 
I, I think the crux of what you're saying is about that real non-judgmental curious approach. So any therapist who's listening just needs to just take that approach. And I'll always say to therapists during trainings and things like that, if you are not comfortable with the topic of sex, be honest about it and, and say to your client, I don't feel 100% comfortable talking about this or I don't know enough about this to be able to assist you fully in this. So I'd rather I do refer you on to somebody who can be there for you in the way that you deserve to have someone there for you. Rather own that in the, in your own discomfort than, than try and create an environment according to a 12-step program that you think might be working or not working. Who knows? So, you know, trying to figure it out as you go along. I, I, I think that there's a real benefit as, as practitioners to owning our limitations to what we can do, but still being able to create an environment that is non-judgmental and curious and um, open for our clients to be able to, to share with us. So what, what should somebody do if they're recognizing themselves in this conversation? What's the first step or what should they expect when they come to see someone like you? I think at the beginning, it's just really to, um, to understand why they come to for help. Because some people come for help because they want to repair their relationships. Some people come for help because they want to tell their partners, I'm going for help. And so, so many will come primarily for um to, to for to avoid their partners leaving them and 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 that's okay that's one way that people can come because then you can still explore all of that but of course that's going to be at some point in the process they will have to also come for them and for them to change as as people and and aligning with their own values and sometimes when people are doing all this exploration the, the 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 results could be that actually they might realize that they have been in a relationship that did not meet their needs and so then the it's a it's a difficult process but the process of changing relationship is sometimes the best thing that people can do but for many it will be um a long haul of treating their trauma that has been unresolved or treating some psychosexual issues that have been unresolved. And that can be quite a long process and it's a difficult one, but you know, in the hands of the right therapist, they can do really, really, uh, really wonderful healing and, um, and become the person that they never even thought they could become. And, and with their sexual behaviors, you know, they can keep their vibrant sexual life and that, that doesn't have to change, but they, it's then integrated um, uh, meaningfully into their lives. So, but, you know, the first session, of course, when people want to come, uh, it will be, you know, very anxiety provoking and they will come with a lot of shame and so on. But if they have the right therapist, you know, the, they, the therapist can hold their shame and they can unpack it and they can take it slow and really, really be, be with them. So, um what I would say is uh, to choose your therapist carefully as well, because many are trained in a sex addiction way of doing it, the, the, the old fashioned way of doing it. And th those trainings haven't really moved on very much. So, so it's important to, 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 to I'd, like, I'd like people to know that they can interview their therapist and they can ask them what is their uh, theories about it, what they know about it. And if they hear things like 12 steps, sex addiction, sobriety, um, or anything like this, I say, beware. Right. If you're, if you, if it's, if it's, um, if you want a sex addiction treatment, you want to be treated like an addict. Okay, go for it. But actually, if you want to really go into the deep places of 
uh, why sexual compulsivity is, is in your life and have an evidence-based scientific approach to compulsivity and be treated for what is clinically endorsed, then I would recommend that you uh, find a therapist that clearly is uh, not trained in sex addiction, but it has plenty of knowledge of contemporary sexology mm. and trauma knowledge helps too and attachment oriented helps too. But you know, a psychosexual and relationship psychotherapist uh, with strong knowledge of sexology is actually could be more helpful than somebody who is uh, trained in, as a sex addiction therapist. So going back to, you know, how you open to this podcast, I would say, you know, if, if, um, if you have room for it, um, you know, you are, you probably have a lot more skills. You might not know, <laughs> but you probably have more skills than somebody who has who had a specific training in sex addiction. So, so that's what I meant when I said, I think I'm going to learn a lot because, you know, my mind, it, I, I had thought that the 12 steps, you know, sounded outdated. I was thinking like, I've often thought this, that, okay, you know, you get sex and love addicts, you know, SLA groups that we call, we call them SLA, uh, sex and love addiction, um, and you get drug and alcohol addiction, narcotic groups and things like that. And I was just thinking to myself, you know, the 12-step program, it wasn't fitting for me. It never really felt like it fitted with sexual compulsivity. So I've, I've really learned something today in that, you know, actually, I am far more capable of, of treating somebody with sexual compulsivity than I might have thought. And this, this isn't actually about having years and years and years of training as an addictions therapist specialist. It's actually about having knowledge of sex. And sexology is the study of human sexuality, the scientific study of human sexuality. And it's about having a specific way of approaching the topic of sex and actually, I just hear really being able to, again, be curious and hold that space for somebody who's willing to go deep and face a part of them and behaviors that are, are shameful, that are hard to go to. And, you know, so many of our clients, whether it's sexual compulsivity or erectile dysfunction or difficulty with orgasm, it's all the same thing. They're, they're struggling with the shame of it. They're struggling with feeling like something's wrong with them. They're struggling with going to those places that bring up uncomfortable emotions. And so much of my work is trauma-based, so much of the work that I do. And so much of my work is around helping people tolerate discomfort, that you'll be okay. We just have to help you understand that your, your brain is, is freaking out and you're thinking, I won't be able to cope with it. So... I really, so, I really so you already have all the skills. Hi, look at me. I can go. I'm opening up tomorrow. No. <laughs> if I'm going to open up my sexual compulsivity clinic tomorrow and you can send me all your overflow class. I wish that that could happen, but you and I both know neither of us has capacity to take on a single new person at this point. No. no. But I, th I think it's great. I'm, I'm so glad that you're thinking this way because a lot of people do think, you know, sexual compulsivity or, or sex addiction is this highly, highly, highly specialized thing out there that requires a very expensive training and, and so on. Um, but no, you, as, as a sexologist, you have, and, and, and trauma um, informed, you already have everything that you need mm -hmm. to do fantastic work. And I'm so glad that, uh, 
that you can think of it that way. Whether you want to work with this population or not, to know that you have the skills is important. And so for people, uh, you know, your question was, in what can people expect? I say, you know, go and see a really well-trained sexologist um, will be most probably more helpful than an addiction person. Well, I've definitely, definitely been schooled. You you did bring up a, a point there um, about why people seek out therapy. And very often it's, we know, especially with couples, um, um, you know, why, are you, tell me a little bit about what brought you here. Well, my partner says I have to be here, you know. So so what about the partners in all of this? I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of, of a partner who's, who's, in a relationship with somebody who struggles with sexual compulsivity. And I imagine there's a lot of misunderstanding. There's a lot of blame. There's a lot of what have I done? You know, what have I done wrong? What could I do differently? I, I imagine that that's also quite a, 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 I don't want to say tricky, but it's quite a delicate landscape to navigate with your client and or their partner. Yes, absolutely. And um, I think the work is very different when you work with a partner of somebody who struggles with sexual compulsivity. It's a very different type of uh, presentations, actually, because it's really about a lot of partners are uh, traumatized, you know, with the discovery. And it depends how the discovery is done um, that really can inform how traumatized partners can be. Because some people have really no ideas. You know, some people with sexual compulsivity have been so good with their organizing their lives that they really don't leave any clues behind until that one uh, that partners find. And so for, for partners, they, they, for many years and years and years, they might have thought that they were married or being in relationship with somebody uh, with a certain, you know, qualities and so on. And then suddenly realizing, oh my gosh, who is this person that, I've, that I'm with, that I've been with? Because they have a completely different perception almost instantly. And if it was done um, with, say, a text that they found that ends up on the family iPad, for example, or something, and they tap on it, suddenly they can have uh, a, a thread of very explicit text or sometimes images that can be, that they're not prepared for. And that can be very traumatic because then as if you have lots of gritty details about what your partner has been doing, that really, really is shocking and, um, and traumatizing. So that is a lot uh, for partners. That's a lot of their work that they would need to do is to, well, heal from, from all of this trauma. And, and then, you know, their life will be so upside down that it's just really trying to find a meaning again, trying to find grounding and a meaning into their relationship and into their lives. And that can be a long, long process. And often partners that need to do that process because, you know, they are the collateral damage of sexual compulsivity, they will be very angry and very resentful to say, why am I the one in therapy? You know, he's or she's the one doing all of this and I'm the one that, that is damaged and doing therapy. That's unfair. And of course, you know, you've got to validate that and it's quite understandable that people feel this way. But also if people can heal their trauma and their betrayal, then they will be able to also understand themselves better because that's part of the process of therapy anyway for them. And then whether they choose to stay or they choose to leave, they will be able to start a new relationship either with the current partner or a new one um, based on a different self-knowledge and based on different groundings. And that can always be uh, useful and helpful. But often this is... That, that result, the positive result, is often 
maybe years down the line. So when they start the process and they're in that uh, place of the discovery and not knowing if they're going to discover more and real darkness of grief and loss and trauma, it can be very hard to see that there's going to be a better, a better life at the end of the tunnel. So it's very, very tough for partners. Mm, I, I really imagine so. And, and I imagine a lot of relationships are lost along the way when somebody is in the process of healing, whether somebody just feels it's too much for them or they're not prepared to wait any longer. So I can imagine that going through therapy to to work to understand your sexual compulsivity could possibly be a very difficult, lonely journey should your partner decide that they they can't do this anymore and they they can't be the collateral damage anymore. But if someone does decide that they will stay there and they'll see this through, I imagine it can be very healing for both people to do the work. Absolutely, yes. And and I've seen some really, really beautiful healing moments between uh, couples, you know, reconfiguring their relationship after this major bomb. That, that's happened and and often when i when you know they're, they're at the end of the process and they look back and you think you know what was it really that that uh, were the pivotal moments often for the partner they will say well <clears throat> what got me to stay actually is that i really saw the pain in my partner's eyes and i really saw the remorse and i really knew that they were really uh, lost and that actually really helps because a lot of people that are caught um, with betrayal, they will go into defense, they will go into blame, they will go into minimizing, they will go into explaining away something. And that usually is what over time breaks a relationship if that's because if the defense becomes a constant. Partners after a while they will be like, I've had enough of this, right? So so that's 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 uh, quite an important piece, I think. But also the other piece from the partner side is to uh, really, it's really the opportunity for them to really gather up uh, all the love that they have for their partner and to be as much as in radical acceptance as possible, even when they can be very angry with their partners because of the betrayal and, and sometimes wishing not to be there, to see beyond that and to see there is still a human being there with the heart that wants to do the right thing. That can be quite a, quite an ask, but uh, for some people, they can, they can really see beyond that and think, okay, I'm going to stay because I have the hope that this person is more than their sexual compulsivity. Mm, it, it really speaks to the, uh, the the notion for me of I love you and I do not love your behavior. It's I can love you as the person. I just really I'm not okay with the the actions that 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 are are evident here. Um, yes, I'm I'm glad that you you've said that there can be beautiful healing moments and you've seen that because I think. If somebody is listening to this whose partner does struggle with sexual compulsivity or somebody struggles with sexual compulsivity and they have a lot of fear around their partners leaving them, I hope that gives people hope um, that this can be very, very powerful, but it, it, it doesn't happen overnight. It's not a quick fix. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of showing up, I mean, wholly, fully, intimately, in order to, to turn towards the thing that's causing you so much distress both, you know, the person struggling and, and their partner and to walk through it and come out on the other side. So if I was going to ask you, you know, if there was only one thing you could ever share again with, with these, these clients, if there was one bit of, of kind of your knowledge that you could only ever part with, 
what would that one thing be? I think it would be stay curious with your erotic mind. Hmm. Because the erotic mind, uh, some of it is, you know, set and permanent, but some of it changes as we experience new things, as we age, as we have new ideas about ourselves and the world around us. Um, stay curious about it because it's something that we don't do. It's something that we've never learned to do in our society that never talks about sex. But if we stay curious about the erotic mind, we stay curious about our uh, there's a big source of aliveness in our erotic mind. There's a big source of, of uh, feeling good about ourselves. It's uh, of fun, of, of um, passion, energy. And so there's, you know, a lot to tap into this. It's not just, you know, sex. It's so much more. And staying in touch with it means that we stay in touch with our beating heart. So, um, yeah, that's what I would say. Stay in touch with your erotic mind. Mm -hmm. That curiosity is really at the, the foundation of healing, of, of therapy, of relationships, of I mean, so much. So the last thing I want to do is I, I, I want to punch your amazing new book because I have a lot of healthcare professionals that listen to my podcast. And so please, you know, I feel like I've just gotten like some special one-on-one -on -one time with you, especially because I can't get hold of your book in South Africa. <laughs> um, not yet. Anyway, I, I've ordered a copy and it's just sitting, sitting in the UK waiting for me. So please just, just, just touch on your amazing new book. Yes, it's called Compulsive Sexual Behaviors, and it's uh, published by Ratledge. Uh, so it's um, a simple guide, really. I just really wanted to write something that's easy to read. It's for clinicians, but it's got everything that you need to know about um, how to conceptualize sexual compulsivity in a way that's going to help you and help your clients, um, how to assess it, and how to treat it with um, a model that I've, uh, I've come up with, a three-phase model for sexual compulsivity. It's not uh, anything to do with uh, very strict things to do. There's no strict protocols, but it's really a really good guide. I find a really good guide to, um, you know, for therapists to really, well, help the clients find their own guide basically. So it's just really how you can uh, walk side by side with your clients through all of those confusing worlds of of sexual behaviors and, and relationships and trauma and so on. So, uh, so that's it. And I, uh, so far, I mean, the book's been released in, in May, uh, uh, May this year. So it's only just been a month or so that it's been released. And I've had uh, some very, very good feedback from therapists so far to say, oh, something that's really, really quite different from what I've been reading and also easy to read and informative. So great. I think <laughs> that was the job I wanted to do. So, uh, so, uh, so I'm pleased about that. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's also, also for people that maybe not um, uh, working with sexual compulsivity, but might be curious about it because sometimes it just comes in your consulting room, even if you don't advertise as, as an expert in this, in this field. So uh, I think it's also helpful for people to uh, get more kind of a self-reflection maybe on, on, on their pre preconceived ideas about sex and relationships. So that's also, I think, helpful for that too. You you really had me at easy to read because most textbooks are not. So I mean, if that doesn't sell it for clinicians, I don't know what does. But yes, uh, I I am so excited to read it. I 
as I said, I haven't ha- I haven't been able to get my hands on it yet because I want the actual hard copy. So like I know I could probably just go get Kindle, but I just want that beautiful hard copy. And when I finally, finally see you in person, you'll you'll put your beautiful signature in it for me, will you? Definitely. Thank you. Well, I've loved chatting to you today. I feel I really feel like something shifted inside of me in terms of my confidence levels, but and also in terms of the way that I've understood why it was my my narrative was how it was and I feel like my curiosity has exploded today and when I open my sexual compulsivity part of my clinic I'll let you know (laughs) great (laughs) thank you so much Silbert oh you're welcome thank you so much for inviting me it was such a pleasure talking to you so I do hope that we get to meet soon someday um and you just you're just such a pleasure to talk to as I, I almost feel like you're your your like your reels on Instagram they exude this just ease and confidence and I feel like that's the exact same version of you that I've got today a real authentic version of you so thank you so much for talking to me you're very welcome it was such a thank you for inviting me it's great that we have the platforms that we can all talk and it's so good to meet you if you enjoyed this episode Why not subscribe to this podcast and continue learning about some incredible and fascinating topics that we need to know more and talk more about. You can subscribe and follow this podcast on your favorite platform. And if you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you would rate and review it. This episode was sponsored by Desir. Desir believes that sexual health is not just about the latest sex toy, but about using products to improve one's overall sexual health and well-being. For 15% off, use the code for a friend.